All right, if you want to turn to Esther 4, we're going to cover, I feel like I've said this the last two weeks and three weeks now, we're going to cover a large section. Um, we're going to get into the heart of the plot of Esther today, and we need to read a large section in order to really feel the, the suspense and then the release, the, the threat and then the joy. Um, just like if you go to a movie, you can't leave for 30 minutes in the middle of it and then come back and expect to fully understand and feel the, the plot and everything that happened in the movie. So we kind of need to get a big picture of what's going on here. Um, let me do a quick recap uh, of, of what's happened so far. So the Jewish people at this time are spread throughout the Persian Empire, this largest empire the world had ever known. And they're spread throughout this empire because God had exiled them out of their land for their faithlessness to him. One of these Jews, Esther, has become the queen of the Persian Empire uh, through a beauty contest that was not particularly PG-rated. Throughout this process, and I don't know why I'm buzzing. Is that, am I really buzzing there? Yeah. Maybe just turn it down, a l turn the gain up top down a little bit. Um, so through this process, Esther has uh, kept her identity as a Jew hidden. And we saw last week that Esther's cousin, and I may have said uncle last week, I apologize, it's not uncle, it's cousin, Mordecai, overhears a plot against the king and ends up saving the king's life. And while he should have been rewarded for this, instead, this Haman the Agagite, an enemy of the Jews, instead receives a promotion and is put in second in command in the kingdom. In response to this, Mordecai refuses to bow down and honor Haman, which understandably infuriates Haman. And so as we jump back in here into chapter 4, Haman has just convinced King Xerxes or Ahasuerus to exterminate the Jews throughout the empire. And Mordecai, Mordecai hears this, tears his clothes, puts on sackcloth and ashes and mourns, as do the rest of the Jews throughout the empire. A day has been set for their destruction. And so with that, we pick up in chapter 4, starting at verse 4. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe, clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his slack cough, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king and to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. So as we saw last week, if this plot of Haman's goes through, this would likely be the end of the Jewish people. The Persian Empire, which they are spread out through, throughout, uh, was the largest empire the world had ever known, stretching from, we're, we're told, from India to Ethiopia. So this would have 
wiped out the Jews. This is a great evil. And kind of what we talked about last week is the question that the Jewish people are wondering in this time, the people scattered throughout the empire, are wondering, will God save the people he made a covenant with? Will God save the people that he rescued out of Egypt, the people that he revealed himself to, that he called to make a covenant with him, that he revealed his will and his law and his presence to, and the people that through whom he promised to bring blessing to all peoples of the earth. God was going to do this great thing for all people through this people. And they are asking, as this threat comes to their very existence, will God hear us? Does God hear us? Will he save us? Doesn't it make any difference that we are his covenant people? And they have reason to be unsure of the answer. Because they are in exile. They are scattered throughout the Persian Empire because God had exiled them, as he said he would, because of their faithlessness to him and because they had turned to idols. Moving on, verse 9. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants... And all the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. Um, you, you see there that this quote-unquote marriage that Esther has to the king is not really much of a marriage. She Hasn't seen him in 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Now, as, as I've noted before, the book of Esther doesn't mention God doesn't refer to God, doesn't mention God. But thankfully, we have this book within the biblical canon. We have this as one of the books in our Bible that God has given to us, through which God has spoken to us. And we know from the rest of the Bible something of God's overarching providence. That God's hand is always at work, even when he's not mentioned. That God's always doing something, guiding things along for a specific purpose. Even when there's no mention of him, including here in the pagan courts of Persia. Uh, we have verses like Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. Seems to be almost a perfect verse encapsulating what is going on in the book of Esther. God is working through this pagan king's heart. 
So it's right for us to look for God's hand and God's providence in this book that never specifically tells us where it is. But we do get some hints of it, including there in that passage we just read. Uh, Mordecai says, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. He seems to know or at least have some hope that God is going to act, God is going to do something, whether or not Esther does her part. He goes on to say, and who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Uh, that is a statement of purpose, of and seemingly divine purpose. Maybe this is why God has brought you here, though he doesn't mention God, but for such a time as this. And so even though the process by which Esther got into this, this position was filled with evil done against her and with her own sin and disregard for God's law. She wasn't blameless in this. She is still here for a reason. You see, we don't live in a world that operates by karma. This idea from Hinduism and Buddhism that our actions are the sole and final determiner in the world. That the future is determined solely by what we do. And if we do good, good will come. If we do evil, evil will come. And so the outcome of our life and of the future and of the world is not in God's hands, but is in our hands. So don't screw up. No, that's not how God has set up the world. It is, our, our actions matter and have real consequences. But praise God that he graciously works good out of our sin. And out of the evil that we find ourselves in. At any point in time, no matter what has happened to you, no matter what you have done, you can turn to God and trust him to work good, to work all things together for good, as Romans 8.28 says, for his people. At any point in time. What that means is that the answer when you find that you have made a mess of your life, is not to go out and do enough good things to outweigh your bad things and then trust in what you've done. No, the answer is to trust God and his mercy to sinners like you and I and his will and his providence to work all things together for good for his people. Don't ever put yourself in a situation like Esther. Don't go out and willingly enter into sin. However, when you find yourself in that situation, whether intentional or not, don't give up hope. You have not frustrated God's good's plans. You have not made God unable to, to work. No, entrust yourself to him and sin no more. Which is something of what we see Esther do next. Chapter 5. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter, and the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you, even to the half of my kingdom. 
And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly, so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is, if I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. So Esther is clearly risking her life here. As, as Mordecai said, or as she had said earlier, if I perish, I perish. So be it. But she realizes that she has a, an opportunity and a responsibility here to do something for the preservation of her people. Now, we don't really know Esther's theology or her view of God. But what if Esther had said, I know God will save his people, so it doesn't really matter what I do. Let's just see how it works. I mean, Mordecai had said as much, right? Like, if you don't do this, it'll happen somehow. But that is not how the Bible teaches us to view God's providence. This interaction, this interplay between God's sovereign hand and our responsibility to act in a certain way. At one and the same time, we are called to live faithfully, act faithfully, and trust in God. We don't put our trust in our actions like with karma. We trust God, but we also don't disregard our need to act. God is going to bring about his providence through various means, including our actions and our decisions and our wills. And sometimes what God calls us to do, sometimes what faithfulness means is risky costly, dangerous. God gives Esther, I mean, God's not mentioned, but Esther has no promise that God, that she will not die, that she will not perish if she does this. But she must do this. God gives us no promise that our faithfulness will be easy, that it will not have great cost, that it will not come with great suffering, with uncertain outcomes. But he does call us to act in faithfulness and then trust the outcome to him. He does call us to believe that he will work all things together for good for his people. The story continues, verse 9. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows, fifty cubits made high be made, 
And in the morning, tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. Now, I said last week that there are several parts in this story and how the author is telling it that seem to be intentionally humorous. And here we see Haman being set up. We see Haman being set up for a fall that is going to be ironic and somewhat humorous, an inglorious fall. He is boasting of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions and the honor that he's invited to this feast with the queen. But he's not satisfied in any of that, as long as Mordecai is still living. And he's not even satisfied to wait for Mordecai, the Jew, as he calls him, to be put to death with all the Jews. He, he wants him gone now so that he can go to this feast and not have to think about him. He can, he can go joyfully to this feast. And this brings us kind of to the punchline of the story. Like Haman's been set up, and then all of the dominoes start to fall and the pieces start to come together. Chapter 6. On that night, the king could not sleep. Notice, consider all of the elements, the, the, the hints of God's providence in this section. The king could not sleep. And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. We read about this a couple weeks ago. And the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. And the king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there, standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king, king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. Great idea, Haman. <laughs> so Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gates, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, if Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. 
So just think of all of the, the hints of God's providence here. All of the things that just happen to happen a certain way. Uh, the king just happens on this night to not be able to sleep. Uh, he just happens to take this moment of insomnia to order that the records be read. And the record that is read just happens to be the one of Mordecai saving his life. And it just so happens that Mordecai, or that the king had never done anything about that to honor Mordecai at that time. So he must honor him now. And then just as he's finishing the story, who happens to be at the door but Haman? And the king tasks Haman, of all people, with giving this honor to Mordecai, the Jew. In, in literature, this is called poetic justice, right? And the story's being told in a certain way, but in life, in history, this is called God's providence. God is working out his purposes. God's hand is, is guiding all of this. He will not let his people be destroyed. And this poetic justice, God's providence, continues. We're going to read one last section for today and then unpack some of this. Chapter 7. Well, end of chapter 6, into 7. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. So the king and Haman went into the feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? And it shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent. For our affliction is not compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he? And where is he? Who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe, an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther. For he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine, as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, fifty cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told, it, told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. So you kind of get a glimpse of, of the base, basis of the plot there. We're not done. We'll come back next week and, and continue on. But you kind of see the rise and fall of Haman here and, and how the author is telling and what he's doing here. Now, one question we should ask at this point is, what are we supposed to feel? How are we supposed to feel at this point in the story? All of the evil that Haman had planned has come back on his head. 
He's hung on the very gallows he had made for Mordecai. Uh, the, the ring, the signet ring of the king's authority that Haman had had to carry out the king's purposes is now given to Mordecai. And this really brings us to one of the challenges of this book that, that doesn't mention God. Because if we read this merely from a Jewish standpoint, the main takeaway seems to be a feeling of relief, a sense of justice, a celebration of feeling vindicated. Haman is dead. We, as the Jewish people, will survive. It seems like, at least at the human author level, this is what is intended as he's writing this book. And this book, we know, as we'll see in the next, next couple of weeks, is connected to a Jewish festival, a festival called Purim. It's a festival that the Jews still celebrate today, and it's a festival that's not particularly religious. It's not particularly about God. It's, it's more an ethnic, national festival than it is a religious one. It's more about the Jewish people. I found one Jewish author who says, Purim is about us. All Jewish holidays are manifestations of deep imprints within the Jewish psyche, each with its particular time of year to blossom. What blossoms on Purim? That we grew up and took ownership of our Jewishness. Um, and if you were to witness this celebration today, it's a, it's a celebration, it's a, it's a observance, a holiday of wild celebrations. Uh, they give gifts to one another. They, they listen to the story of Esther being read. They give some gifts to the poor. And they celebrate a festive meal. And according to at least some, uh, they drink wine until they can no longer tell the difference between the phrase, cursed is Haman and blessed is Mordecai. So they drink a good bit of wine. But how do we read this as Christians? How do we read this in light of the Bible as a whole? Surely there is more for us here than a wild celebration of Jewishness. Surely there is more for us here than elevating Mordecai as a national hero and despising the evil Haman. And one of those things we talked about in the first sermon is God's, that is that the fact that God's preserving of the Jews is connected to God's bringing about a Messiah. And so that this is our story as God's people. That God is bringing about his blessing of all peoples of the earth through the Jewish people. Another of things that we can find in this story as we read it as Christians is that just as the Jews of this time are God's covenant people, so are all who are connected to Christ today, God's covenant people, and we likewise can hope in God to rescue and vindicate us. That's what God does to his people. We've talked about those two things in the last couple weeks. But another thing that stands out as we try to read this from a Christian perspective, and which, as you read the commentators and, and, and those who write about this book, most of them focus on, is God's providence. So I want to just draw a few implications of what God's providence means for us and connecting to what we've just read. What does that mean in practice? So four things. First, God's providence means that God is always working. 
God is always working. God is working everywhere and always. Um, a couple verses from the book of Daniel make this clear. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. A little bit later in Daniel, he, get, he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? So God was at work in pagan Persia. Just just because the king and all of the inhabitants of Persia didn't acknowledge God doesn't mean that God wasn't ruling over them and acting in and through them. Everywhere in the world, everywhere in your life, God is at work. In your home, in your workplaces, at school, on your vacations, in your relationships, marriage, in your parenting, God is at work. Furthermore, God is at work in situations brought about through questionable motives or sinful actions. Just because Esther and Mordecai hadn't been completely faithful or obedient to God doesn't mean that God wasn't still working through them. Doesn't mean that God had abandoned them. It's not the case that God is at work when we've been faithful or only when we've been faithful to him, when we're doing pretty well, when our good is outweighing our evil. But then he ceases to work when we, we've had a bad day. I mean, you look through the Bible, and every character in Scripture is a sinner, and clearly so. And most of the well-known ones are commit some great sin. Paul murdered Christians. David committed adultery and murder. Peter denied knowing Jesus. And yet God used these three and, and all of the other characters in Scripture, and he worked great good through them. Again, Romans 8, 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. And I looked up the word all in all things, and it really means all, every. He's not... He's never not working for the good of his people. He's never not working for the good of those that he has bought with the blood of Jesus. Second implication of God's providence. God will accomplish his purposes. Uh, providence doesn't just mean that God is powerful. It means that God is purposeful. It doesn't mean just mean that God can do what he wants, and he will do what he wants. It means that he always has a good purpose. He's working towards a specific end. Uh, We see in the book of Esther that God will not allow his people to be destroyed. He will not allow any powers or rulers to destroy his people. Even the world's greatest, most powerful kingdom and ruler that had ever been. We can say today, God has an invincible plan to save his people, and no powers or rulers or threats will deter, them, deter that plan. God has an invincible plan to save a people for himself by sheer grace and to bring that people into his presence for all eternity. And he will do it. Uh, just as the Jews Just like the Jews, we were destined for certain death because of our sin. Death and the devil had a claim on us. 
And yet God will save his people. Our sin and its judgment will not win. The devil's plans will not succeed. And this includes his providence to save you. Your hearing of the gospel, your finally understanding the gospel after years of, of hearing it, grasping it, you're picking up a Bible to read it. You're being convicted of your need for a savior for your sins. None of these things was random. None of these things just happened to you or was merely your decision, though it involved that at times. But God saved you, and he has yet more to save. Third implication of God's providence. Human decisions and actions matter and have consequences. So, again, don't misunderstand God's providence. You and I are called to be faithful and obedient. And it matters that we are. Faithfulness to, will lead to certain consequences, and unfaithfulness will lead to other consequences. So on the one hand, we don't ever get to take a break from diligently living for God's glory. We are never justified in sinning in thinking that we are not responsible for our actions. Every second of our lives, every thoughts, every word, every action, every decision we make is loaded with meaning and significance. Esther couldn't excuse herself and just say, well, God will do it. And yet, the fulfillment of God's purposes is not, is not in our hands. We can't thwart what God has planned. And really, there is great comfort in this tension, if you will, in this reality. We need to know that our lives in their totality matter and yet still be able to trust God. Because I'm not sure if you figured it out yet, but we will not always govern our lives very well. We will realize that there are many things outside of our control. We will realize that good intentions are often not good enough. And we will fail and sin and hurt people when we don't mean to. And in these times, we need to know that we can trust God. And we can. Again, there is great comfort in knowing that we can trust God right now, regardless of the mess we've made or the mess that others have made against us. And we don't have to go out and bring our good deeds up to level with our bad deeds and then God will maybe give us some good things. No, we can trust him right now. And fourth and finally, God's providence means that the things that come into your life, including the things that come into your life due to your own sin, or weakness, and the sin of others against you, are not random, meaningless, or merely the result of human decisions and actions, but are specifically designed by God for a purpose. And if you are his, through faith in Christ, that purpose is always good. The unique challenges and weaknesses and temptations and struggles that you face have been ordained by God to work together for your good. It is always so easy to look at other people and wonder why they seem to have it so easy. Why they don't have to go what 
we have to go through? Why don't they deal with these challenges? Of course, we don't know the answers to that, but we do know it's not due to some unfairness on God's part. Some preference on God's part. God knows what you need. God knows what I need. God knows what will work for your maturity and strengthening and joy and for others. Nothing comes to you without purpose. And this comfort of resting in God's providence drives us back to God's word and to each other. On our own, if we just interpreted, interpreted the world on our own, apart from God's word, apart from God's people, we would probably arrive at the conclusion that is godless, like Esther. That everything is just happening, and there's no rhyme or reason for it. Without any mention or evidence of God, just random things coming at us. But when we come back to God's word, and as others remind us of it and point us back to it, we are reminded of how the world actually works. That our world is God entranced, God directed, God ruled. He rules over all, he rules over everything. And since his rule is a good rule to all who are his, who all, to all who have been saved and purchased by his blood-bought grace, we can trust him in all things and in all times. Let's pray.